you forward at this time. So good you can be with us, and as you share the ancient words with us too, we trust in the Lord's blessing. Thank you so much. May I use your mic stand? Uh... All right. This is over there, okay? How's is this? All right. I can't be that far away from you. So if you won't come to me, I'll come to you. Um, it's good to be here. Uh, I start by saying I bring you greetings from Pastor Burton Herder. Um, on our way down here, we, um, it, this is kind of an interesting point. Um, we decided to do, I wanted to do one more trip across um, the states and Canada from the east to the west by car. I've done it many times before, many times by plane, um, all kinds of ways. Very little by train. I remember taking the train when I left here in 1959 to start Calvin. I don't think I've taken the train since, not to, on that trip. But so on the way through here, we decided we wanted to take one more drive to, through Canada. And uh, I'm getting older, and so we thought, you know, you better do it before you, you, know, you decide to do it and you can't do it. So here we are. But we stopped, we came through Lucerne, Minnesota, where Pastor Dun Herder has retired. And I knew him well. He was, in a, some sense, instrumental in me going to Calvin. He was a strong encourager of that. And I remember very well on, in September of 1959, when I left Lacombe by train for Calgary and then all the way to Winnipeg and down to Minneapolis and then to Chicago and then over to Grand Rapids. Uh, he was at the train station along with his wife along with my family members, and it was a big time. It was a, a leaving home, and it was really leaving home. I had never been to Grand Rapids. I had no idea what it was. It was a kind of on the spur of the moment that we decided to go to Calvin. I just knew that Calvin was out there. I'd never had a chance to go to a Christian school. We didn't have that. So here I'm going to a Christian school. So we went to Calvin, and, uh, but on this way through, we stopped at Pastor Dun Herder, and I didn't know where I'd find him. I didn't know if he was still alive. I assumed he was because I hadn't heard anything otherwise. So I stopped. We stopped in, uh, in Lucerne, Minnesota, the first gas station we saw. And I said, do you have a phone book? And sure. And so I looked in the phone book. Well, there were the herders in there, so that's a good start. And I said to the lady, do you know anybody by the name of Burton Herder? And just, you know, somebody ringing up cash. And she said, does he have a daughter, Phyllis? And I said, yeah, he does, I think. So she said, Phyllis is my neighbor. And uh, so she said, I can give you, I said, do you know anything about Pastor Bert? Well, I didn't know, she said, I don't know my neighbor that well, but I didn't know that her dad was a father, but here's a phone number, call her up. So I called Phyllis, and she said, yeah, he's still alive. He's in an assisted living home. And I think, and she knew of us, and, and she said, I think he would love to see you. So if I give you directions, please go down there. So she gave me directions, we walked in. And he looked at me for a while, and it was very much pastored, Burton Herder. On his desk in front of him was a Dutch psalm bookie. <laughs> and he says, I, I said, what do you do with that? And he said, I still sing those psalms. I said, well, you weren't born in Holland. You weren't raised in Holland. Why are you singing Dutch psalms? He said, because my parents raised me in Dutch. And I said, oh, you stumper. 
<laughs> you poor soul. And he said, he laughed. So we had a wonderful time of fellowship. So we, when we told him we were coming this way, he said, please give them my greetings. I think he's 92 now. His mind is alert. He loves the Lord. His wife died two years ago, he said. And his family is pretty much in the area. So uh, he, he had fond memories about Bethel Lacombe. And he, had, he very, very clearly remembered the time that we left for Calvin. And he has good memories of that. Maybe even better than I do. Um, but anyway, so that was our time. But I, that just introduces a little bit to where I am. Uh, I'm 76 years old now. If you hadn't figured that out, those of you who know and have been around a while, that's, that's what it is. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not proud of it. It's just a fact. Um, and I'm now at the point where I think it's time to retire. Um, I've been doing a lot of preaching, and I'm to the point where I think it's time to stop preaching. So this may well be the last time I will preach here. Now, I don't say that with a lot of nostalgia or ask you for a lot of tears. I don't see too many yet. But uh, I have not been here for a long time. But it's been a hard decision because I still do a lot of mentoring. I do a lot of coaching. I have a great love for the church. And it grieves me. It really grieves me most of the time to see the development of the CRC. Not in the direction that a lot of others have left us and have gone the United Reformed or some other way. I just see the pain that we go through with the division and all that stuff. But my deepest pain is that in many instances, the younger generation is leaving us. And that's wrong. And it's sad. And we need to own that. We need to own that. I've come to the conclusion that my generation has been tough on the next generation. And I've also come to the conclusion, I say that with deep joy and deep confidence, that we have not done well passing the baton to the next generation. And the next generation, folks, is ready to run. The most dynamic churches, and I work with a lot of them, the most dynamic churches that I now work with are the churches that the generation under 50, mostly between 55 and 30 are taking leadership, and they're good. They're visionary. Just let them loose. Stop holding them back. That's my plea. If you do and continue, if you hold them back, they will leave, because God is telling them and calling them to move, and to move the church forward. I believe we're going to see a revival if the next generation has anything to say about it. Now, that's a, a high way to start. So in this journey, and I'm just sharing this journey, this journey of letting go, I had one text that, has, that I never preached on and that always scared me because of the contents of the text. And it's this text. I got close to it a number of times and I preached some passages around it, but I never hit it dead on. And it's this text. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but by me. It's that last part that gave me the trouble. It is very unculturally, diplomatically, politically wise to say that the only way is the Jesus way. 
Say that to a Muslim. Say that to a Jew. Say that to a Jehovah Witness. Say that to a secularist who has it all together and who's convinced that his materialism and his stuff will get him through life. And if only you were as focused upon the stuff and the culture and all the good things that is to offer, you would see that the only way isn't the only way. And so my struggle was, do I dare really say what that text says? Do I dare say to you folks, all of us need to recognize that there's only one humble way home. There's just one humble way home. The underlying assumption of the text is a wonderful assumption. And it is this assumption that you can agree is universally true. Every human being has a longing to go home. Every human being has a longing for a relationship with God, the God who made heaven and earth. Every human being has a longing and a hunger for a deeper sense of purpose than just living day to day. Just gathering up more, making ends meet, living, dying, sleeping, dying, sleep, waking up, sleeping, dying, and then end it all. No, that isn't what Jesus says it's all about. It is all about moving forward and heading home and keeping focused on that. But in order to come home and in order to get home, Jesus is very clear that there are not many roads and there are not many churches and there are not many alleys and trails and ways. There is just one way. And if that is the case, I just got to say to you, you better make absolutely sure that you're on it. And nobody can do that for you. Well, now let's read the scripture. The scripture is taken from John. John 13, we begin at verse 36. Look it up in your Bibles. I didn't put on a PowerPoint. I know you got these Bibles in the pews, and it may have been a while since you looked up John. But if you want to find John in that Bible, it's about two-thirds of the way through. And for the Bible where I was sitting, it was on page 1675. Now, I can't, don't need to give you any more help than that. Figure it out. But look it up. Now, here's the journey. This is the passage, 13, chapter 13, is where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. We all know that story. And he begins to predict that times are going to change. Somebody's going to betray him. And that starts at verse 18. And he emphasizes and explains it more fully, beginning at verse 31. And uh, he begins to say, I'm going to be betrayed. He says, I'm going to be gone for a little while. Then I will come back for a little while. And then I will leave you. And you are going to be the one that gets to carry the ball from here. It's in your lap. The work that I did, you will do. Greater things than I did, you will do. So get ready. But you're not going to be alone. You will have company. And the company that accompanies you is the company of the Holy Spirit. Now, you don't know what that is, but that's richer and fuller and bigger than I am, says Jesus. That's why I'm leaving. It's better for you that I go. It's better for the church. It's better for you. It's 
better for God, it's better for the kingdom. So I'm leaving. So get ready. So Simon Peter asked him, verse 36, here we go. Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter, I'm going home and you're coming too, but not yet. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Now that's a big question. Jesus say that, but will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me. Not just once, not just twice, three times, Peter. So then we start chapter 14. Really those chapter divisions shouldn't be there. Jesus goes right on with this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way the place, or to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Philip said, Philip, first it was Thomas, now it's Philip. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And that'll be enough for us. Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe in me. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, better days are ahead. You think things look really sad and gloomy and despairing. The cross is looming on the horizon, but better days are ahead. The cross is just one step in the fulfillment of the Father's plan. This theme of Jesus' life was over and over again. I came to do the will of him who sent me. You want to know what God wants? Well, then see me, hear my words, do my will. You want to meet the Father? Look at me. Hear what I say, hear what I do. You will see the Father in me, and the Father will be glorified in what I'm doing. And the Father will be glorified as he releases his Holy Spirit and he will continue to do what he's doing now in a little way through me. 
all over the world by the release of the Holy Spirit. That's what's coming. So this is a time of bad news for the disciples because they see the immediate future. They're losing Jesus, their friend, their master. And now what are they going to do? What are we going to do without him? He has such potential. Peter saw the potential. He's going to liberate us from the Romans. He can do miracles. He can set us free. He can build a new political power. Wow! And all of that, boom, it comes to naught. This is not the kingdom. Well, then how does the kingdom come? The kingdom comes, says Jesus, my way. There's only one way. It is the way, my way. I am walking and leading and teaching and holding before you the way. And that is the direction that we're going to go, the route that we're going to follow, the fulfillment, the goals that we're going to fulfill, and it's going to be built on truth, not tradition. It's going to be truth, not just the things you like. It's going to be truth, not just power. It's going to be truth coming to full expression in the same virtue that I'm going to portray. And the virtue that he's going to portray at this very moment is described by Paul in first or in Philippians 2, where he says, Have this mind in you, the mind that Christ Jesus had in him where he thought equality with God was not something to grasp and hang on to, but equality with God was something to let go. And he humbled himself. He humbled himself and became a human being. Not just a human being, but he became a servant. Not just a servant, (coughs) but a servant who washed feet, but a servant unto death. And it wasn't just humility that led him to become a servant under death, but it was a cursed death, the death on a cross. And in that way, that walking route of humility, serving and loving and giving himself for others to fulfill the Father's will, he found life. And he says, therefore, because of that route, God highly exalted him. And lifted him above everyone else. And made him king of kings. And lord of lords. That's the route folks. He's looking for godly people. Who are willing to say. Not my way. Not my will. Not my kingdom. Not my empire. Not my accumulation. Not my home. Not my farm. Not my business. But your kingdom is number one. And Jesus taught that. If you seek first my kingdom and its righteousness, he said in Matthew 6, if you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, everything else will be added unto you. But you will have to humble yourself and come my way. You'll have to humble yourself and hear my truth. And my truth will impinge upon your lifestyle. My truth will impinge upon your thoughts. 
and your ways and your goals and your ideals and your seeking of accomplishments and achievements. All of that is up for rethinking, says Jesus, because it's not my way. Well, folks, what road are you on? What road are we on? What road are we on? Are we willing to pay the price? And it grieves me. I've watched my generation now for 70-some years, and it grieves me deeply that one of the reasons the church is where it's at is not because it didn't have the truth. It had the truth. There is no faith richer than the Reformed faith. It's very interesting to me that the Roman Catholic Pope, Pope Francis now, is concerned about the environment and better stewardship of resources. Well, we've Reformed church. People have said that ever since the Reformation took place. The world's not our own. It belongs to God. And we are simply called to be what? Stewards. We don't own a stinking thing. It all belongs to God. And God says, here it is. I entrust it to you, and you get to develop it, and you get to enjoy it, but you do it according to my rules, and you do it according to my way, and you do it for my glory, and not for your own achievement, not for your own arrogance, your own accomplishments. It is all mine, says God. And get that through your heads. Now, on that, we built Christian schools. We built Christian churches. But all of those are suffering. Why? Well, we're in hard times, aren't we? No, we're not. We've never been richer. We've never been more blessed. I see churches dying all over the place and young people and old people asking, why is this happening? Why are we declining? Why are the youth leaving? Where are they going? Are they looking? Yeah, they're looking, but where will they find it? Well, they're not finding it where they're looking. No, because where they're looking, they can't find it. But what needs to happen? Well, I think just a few things. Truth. Truth is hardest of all. Truth really begins to happen when the Word of God hits you at the core of your being, right here in your gut. And it says, this ain't right. This needs to be addressed. It is wrong to sweep it under the rug. It is wrong to ignore it. It's wrong and sinful and displeasing to me, says God, that when you ignore my word and my will and you teach by modeling, you teach by modeling, not by speaking. Oh, we speak and teach all the right words. But do we model what we believe? Do we model what we really know or are we caught up? For example, how do we deal with the issue when Jesus says he was willing to lose his life for my sake will find it. And he who thinks that he has to keep and preserve his life will lose it. He'll end up with nothing even though he thinks he's retaining everything. It is such an upside down world, people. And it's time we got upside down with the scriptures, rather than right side up with our culture and with humanity. 
And it's interesting that we will find probably, I think we're going to find churches lining up differently with one another. And it's not going to be the old static way. We've, we at this particular point, I'm convinced, have more in common with many of the Roman Catholics than anybody else. We have way more in common with Bible-believing Roman Catholics than we do with liberal Protestants. Yeah, you know that too. Who, who's on board about issues like abortion? Who's on board about issues like abuse? And who's coming clean on abuses that have taken place in institutions where they should have never happened? And who's leading the way? Oh, it took a lot of doing. But they're leading the way. And we still have all kinds of hush-hush stuff going on. It's buried. It's hard to face truth. And truth usually begins by self-recognition in the light of spirit unfolding. So my strong plea with all of you would be, have you asked the spirit to unfold the wrinkles in your heart, in your thinking, in your living? Are you bold enough? And do you have enough faith to ask God to change whatever needs to change and to point out whatever needs to be addressed? And I say, folks, for us, my generation, that's really hard. But I'm also telling you that in my contact, especially with younger men and women, preachers and others, they're doing it in many instances. So I'm hopeful. I'm saying to our older, my generation, let go and release the church and bless, just bless to no end the next generation and pray for them and walk with them. And if you want to see this church change, that's one step you'll have to take. And that's one step of trust you'll have to ask God for. It will take faith to do that. And I dare you to step out. Truth. Truth is not just a system of principles and facts. Jesus is the truth. Truth is his whole life. His life, his modeling, and that was his message. His message of going to the cross and saying to the disciples, you want to go with me, but you can't follow me now, but you will later. Every one of them died a violent death. They followed the way of persecution and suffering. It wasn't any easier for them as it was for Jesus because identification with Christ means self-denial. Identification with Christ means following Him and doing His will no matter what it costs. I dare you. And I challenge the younger generation, please lead the way. Help us. The last one is the way, the truth, and life. Now, what in the world does that include? That, to me, seems pretty comprehensive. What is your life like? How fulfilling is it? How filled with joy is it? How meaningful is it communicating the good news of the gospel consistently. How well do your children know from your lips, from your hearts, from your modeling, from your priority, 
from your visions that you love Jesus and that you love him more than anything or anyone else and that you will go out of the way to see others love Jesus and that there's no greater desire to provide for your children whatever is necessary that they might come to know the richness of the life of Jesus Christ. And if that means you have to deny, deny yourself for the next five or ten years of certain patterns and habits and addictions in order to get the message across, then you do that. Because you do it for the king's sake. You do it for the kingdom's sake. And you do it in order that the next generation may have faith. My greatest concern the last little while is simply this. I'm doing a seminar on it at the Diaconal Conference in Ontario. Is, and the question is, will our children have faith? And I'm hoping that none of the children will be there, but all the parents and adults will be. Because it starts with us. So folks, are you ready to face the next step? Will this church flourish again? Will it grow again? Or will it wither and die? Because you're just not willing to take the risk, pay the price, or take the steps. This is heavy. It's a heavy burden. And I get to preach it only once. Let's pray.